Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present when went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the asherim, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites by their divisions, each according to his service, both the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and peace offerings, to minister and to give thanks and praise in the gates of the camp of Yahweh. He also appointed the king's portions of his goods for the burnt offering, namely for the morning and evening burnt offerings, and for the burnt offering for the Sabbaths and for the new moons, and for the fixed festivals, as it is written in the law of Yahweh. Also he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might devote themselves to the law of Yahweh. And as soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. And the sons of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep and the tithe of sacred gifts, which were consecrated to Yahweh their God, and placed them in heaps. In the third month, they began to make the heaps and finish them by the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the rulers came and saw the heaps, they blessed Yahweh and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok, said to him, Since the contributions began to be brought into the house of Yahweh, we have had enough to eat with plenty left over, for Yahweh has blessed his people, and this great quantity is left over. Then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of Yahweh, and they prepared them. And they faithfully brought in the contributions and the tithes and the consecrated things. And Conaniah the Levite was, an officer, was the officer in charge of them. And his brother Shimei was second. And Jehiel and Azaziah, Nahath, Ashael, Jeremoth, Jozebad, Eliel, Ismaikiah, Ismaikiah, <laughs> Mahath and Benaiah were overseers under the authority of Conaniah and Shimei his brother by the appointment of King Hezekiah. And Azariah was the chief officer of the house of God. And Korah, the son of Imnah, the Levite, the keeper of the eastern gate, was over all the free will offerings of God to apportion the contributions for Yahweh and the most holy things. And under his authority were Eden, Mineneimim, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, Shechaniah, and the cities of the priests, to distribute faithfully their portions to the brothers by divisions, whether great or small, without regard to their ge genealogical enrollment. To the males from 30 years old and upward, everyone who entered the house of Yahweh, for his daily obligations for their work and their duties according to their divisions, as well as the priests who were enrolled genealogically according to their father's households, and the Levites from 20 years old up and upwards by their duties and their divisions. And their genealogical enrollment included all their little children, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for the whole assembly, for they consecrated themselves faithfully in holiness. Also for the sons of Aaron the priest who were in the pasture lands, their cities, or in each and every city, there were men who were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among the priests and to every one genealogically enrolled among the Levites. And thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, uh, right, and true before Yahweh his God. And every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Begin in verse 19. 
Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they do not, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the fields grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will, cure, will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If you would now turn to the back of your bulletin, we'll read... Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wind that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. May sinners vanish from the earth and from the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into Sheol. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, Universal Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come now to hear truth from you. Your word is all truth. Your word is powerful. It is creative, recreative, transforming. You speak and your word does not return void. It comes down like snow and showers that new things may sprout in our lives all at your direction and your hand. And so we pray this morning that as we hear your word, you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In the name of our great Savior, we pray. Amen. There was a lady in the church. She's uh, no longer in the church now. She's in a church, don't misunderstand me. She hadn't left the church. She moved to a different church, but uh, she took a lot of notes in the margin of her Bible. And uh, when we were in small groups, not on Sunday morning, but in smaller groups, I would say something and she'd say, you didn't say that same thing in 1994 of May. Well, how do you know? It's written right here in my Bible with your initials by it. Well, uh, again, I find it a very oh, incomprehensible idea that someone arrives at the truth at a young age and never changes anything. God's Word is infinite and He is infinite. And so changes take place. We're all growing and unless we're uh, stubborn hearted and say, well, I learned this and so that's the way it's going to be, then, then we'll just be stubborn hearted. Otherwise, we will be growing. Well, so some things I'm going to say today uh, if you had it in your margin from years ago, you might see a little change. The first thing I want to say is, 
this section of scripture about Hezekiah is just fantastic. And if you read the, the live stream email, you see an observation that was not first made by me, but when I saw it, when I read it, I said, that is right. Second Chronicles chapter 31. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out into the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the ashram, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. One has to begin to think, well, the way one put it is symbolically. The language of the Bible is symbolic. That does not mean that it's not literal. But when you say a word, it points to something. And lots of stuff in the scripture points to things in the way that we do not think. So, again, let me just briefly, because I took way too long last Sunday, trace the idea through the scriptures. In this verse 1, destroyed and finished are the same word as I put in the email. And destroyed and finished is the word kala in Hebrew. And it's the word that is used when God finished creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So God finished, they were completed. Now this whole world was created and there was a garden temple where on Sabbath, the seventh day, God would come to meet with men. Well, the very first Sabbath turned out to be a disaster because of man's sin, but it was a temple where God would meet with man. So this whole world is this cosmic temple, and he finds a place, makes a place, where he's going to meet with man. Well, because of sin, man was kicked out of the garden, and angels were posted with flaming swords so they couldn't get back in. And the plan of redemption began its course. And it comes all the way down to Israel coming out of Egypt, which is what chapters 29 through 32 are mostly about, the Passover. Remembering what God did to deliver his people from Egypt. And they came out to Sinai, and there they were given the law, and they were given a building program of a movable tent why? This tent was a representation, again, of the cosmos, but it became a place where God would meet with his people. The first temple, gone. Now, something new. Well, where God is, is 
the center of the universe. So we say, well, in Genesis, God created heaven and earth. It doesn't say that about the tabernacle, but the language is the same. A new creation whereby God and man will meet. Again, Israel sinned, and the, the tabernacle was abandoned and taken away, and so God started something new, and he built the temple. And the temple is another picture of the cosmos, whereby God would come and meet with man. And Israel enjoyed that temple, say, from 1000 B.C. all the way down to 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And then it says the same thing. It uses the same wording. When that temple was completed, kala, it was finished. Well, God's intention was never to live in a building. God's intention was that he would live in his people. So as you trace through the Bible, then you come down to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, some people think they find a rebuilding of the temple that's going to take place. Now, there is no passage of Scripture that says such a thing. It is an inference. And in my opinion, it's not a very good inference. It's, 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 it's not looking at the flow. And so when Jesus comes, there's a question about the destruction of the temple. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. But of course, he was speaking about the temple of his body, which is what happened when Christ died and rose again and sent forth the Spirit. Now this new temple is built. It's us. Now, what happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 31 is the completion of the temple project. So, it's been cleansed out and the priests and the Levites are now all consecrated and they've enjoyed a too long week Passover as in Solomon's day and you come down to the end of the chapter and everybody's rejoicing the king's given all kinds of animals for sacrifice and the rulers have given all kinds of animals for sacrifice so they 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 worship for another week, and at the end of the week, everybody's full of joy, and the Levitical priests stand up, and we know this from Scripture. We, we know it. It's not a guess. They raised their hands, and they blessed the people. That is, they're calling something down. And their prayer ascended to heaven, it says at the end of chapter 30, and it was heard. And chapter 31 is that blessing. Because what had happened for 16 years, God was angry with his people. The temple doors were shut. Everything was disgustingly unclean. All kinds of altars and idols were built up in the temple complex and around the city and out into other cities. 
And for 16 years, God did what, it doesn't say it here, but you know it's what happened because God said, if you do this, then I'm going to make the skies like iron and the ground is going to be hard as rock. There won't be any crops. There's been a lot of languishing for 16 years. But if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and repent and turn to me and turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive and restore their land. Chapter 31 is a picture of that. Chapter 31 is about first, when the Passover was over, they went and destroyed idols, not only in the southern kingdom, but in the northern kingdom. So now God has his place. He is meeting with his people in the temple, and there's peace all around, and he heals the people. He's fulfilling Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, a passage most of us know. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. And that is what has happened here. So we come to chapter 31. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a storyline that starts with destruction, the completion of the project. So now God can sit in his temple, so to speak, and be at rest with his people. So... Finishing off, just as Solomon did, at the direction of David, his father, now Hezekiah does. And this chapter is about appointing the priests on one hand who are going to deal with the offerings and appointing the, the Levites on the other hand all by their divisions where they come and serve at a certain time and then they go home. And the king says, okay, here's what the king is going to provide for this house, for this ministry, for this service. And here's what the people are going to provide for this house, for this ministry, for this service. And so the king and the rulers are going to provide the ascension offerings for every prescribed ascension. That is, the morning and the evening, the new moons, the festivals that have been prescribed. For example, in Leviticus chapter 23, seven of them. He's going to provide himself the offerings, the, the ascensions, the bulls and the sheep. And what are the people going to do? Well, the people are going to do the same thing that we use those words today, tithes and offerings. A tithe, of course, is, well, it's similar to a tax because King Yahweh, through his servant, has commanded that this is what will happen. An offering, on the other hand, is a vow or a free will offering. One does not have to give it because of thanks to God, they decide to give it. And all of this is to support God's house where he lives among his people. So Hezekiah sets the priests in order by their divisions. He sets the Levites in order by their divisions. He tells what he will supply for the service of this house along with other rulers, and he tells the people what they will supply. 
And once the order has gone forth, the people bring in so much. The order went out in the third month. First month, cleaning up the temple. Second month, the Passover. Third month, the order goes out, the command, the tithe command, the offering command, and people bring in so much. So you got the third month all the way, it says here, to the seventh month. Well, you know, those are festival months. It's, it's the grain harvest in the third month, and it's the olive harvest and the grape harvest in the seventh month. So in all this time, they keep bringing their stuff, and there is so much, everybody is well satisfied, and there's plenty left over, so they start piling in heaps all this stuff. And Hezekiah comes and he sees, and they explain to him what happened, and so he does what one would do. All this stuff is given to God. It's not somebody's to take home. So they put it in storage houses in the temple complex. They store it to provide for this one tribe that has no inheritance in the land, the Levites, that includes the priests and the gatekeepers and the musicians and the singers. All of this is provided for them. This is where we come up with the idea, not to mention Paul himself says it, but this is where we come up with the idea that in local churches, local churches, which are called the temple of the living God. This is where we come up with the idea that, okay, we have a group of men who are leading the church. Okay, they get paid. God provides for them through the people. And musicians, they get paid. God provides for them through the people because this is the service of the Lord. When we come on Sunday, it's for God's word and it's to respond back with prayers and music as we've already done this morning. So, the tithe. Okay. We can see then, number one, chapter 31 is the answer to the blessing. God heals his land. It produces crops madly. And the people willingly pay their tax, the tithe. This is God's blessing. Now, do we tithe today? Well, this is really quite controversial in the church today. And it comes again because, well, we haven't done our thinking as well as we ought to. So over here we say, well, the old covenant is a covenant of works. Uh, not so. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. So in the old covenant, you get commandments to tithe. But in the new covenant, we talk about grace giving. Grace giving means, or as uh, one of my favorite preachers says, it's grace giving is you give proportionally. If you make a very little, you might give 1%. If you make enough, you might give 10%. If you make a bunch, you might give 25% or whatever. 
That is not the Bible's view of giving. The Bible's view goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 14 and Melchizedek and Abraham. Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham when he had won the battle and he gave him bread and wine, not a coincidence. And Abraham gave him 10%. And the argument in Hebrews is that the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek is up here and Aaron's down here. And Jesus Christ is a priest according to the Melchizedekian priesthood. So, Levi was in the loins of Abraham, and so he paid tithes. So, if that went on, what in the Bible tells us to change that? Absolutely nothing. Of course, you know, if you... And don't misunderstand me. People who believe in grace giving, I'm sure they're very generous. I used to teach that. I taught it here. It might be in your margin. <laughs> you can now scratch it out. Now, you know, that opens a whole bunch of questions, which we're not going to answer, but you can imagine. I mean, the government, they look into your bank accounts to make sure that you've been honest in your taxes. Well, at least some people's they look into. And don't you know the elders? Didn't you see that on the information sheet where you give your name, your email, and your bank account? I, I was in a, in a group that met here in McKinney. Uh, I started in 2007, I believe, and it lasted until a couple of years ago. And, and during COVID, it died. Not because of COVID. It just happened that it died in, during COVID. And uh, we would eat together once a month. Uh, when I first started, there was maybe 25 different preachers from the area. Uh, you know, as, as far away as Sherman and so forth, but from the area who uh, wanted to get together, and most of them were Reformed, not all of them. And so we, we had a steering committee, and we would, we would pick a person to give a presentation, a paper, on a topic at our lunch. And the person would get an hour which was supposed to include time to, for people to ask questions. And so one of them was on tithing. Mm. So there's a lot of literature written on that, a lot of things. I don't know if you've read any of it, but uh, this particular preacher who presented his paper said, um, well, we ask people what their income is. And we make sure they give 10%. Otherwise, we excommunicate them. Well, now, that view is not so uncommon. 
I don't happen to agree with it. I think God's pretty well equipped if he makes a command for you to make sure your thoughts are clean. He's the one who uh, can take care of dealing with you when your thoughts aren't clean. If he gives a command that one is to give 10% to support his house and its ministry, he is the one who knows your income and what you're doing with it and whether you are joyfully giving to the Lord 10%. So we'll leave it there. So here's this blessing. And it reaches up to heaven, and an answer comes down, and the temple's all been cleaned out, the priesthood and the Levitical system's all been presented, and now the tithe begins. Okay, I'm done with that topic. A lot more could be said, as you could imagine. The next thing I want to talk about is children. Now, in this passage, you see Levitical houses were supported, priestly houses were supported, even children to the age three would, it's mentioned, and that's because at age three, children were weaned in that culture. And so at age three, they would begin to eat. And uh, so since they're a son of Aaron, they get the priest's portion. And, of course, it varies based on the offerings and so forth. We're not, we're not even going to explore that idea. The children ate. Now, I want to throw something out, and uh, I realize tomatoes and eggs might start coming my way. But think about this. When the children of Israel, this section, remember, is about the Passover, remembering what God did. A man, if he had a large enough family, took one lamb on the 10th day, kept it until the 14th day to make sure that it had no mars in it, that it was unblemished to be a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, no blemish found in him, only perfection. And the lamb was slaughtered, and the blood was caught and painted on the door, and everybody went in the house, and they ate the food, and if there was something left over, it was burned up. Then they waited for the call. And they went out, and they crossed the Red Sea, and they came to Mount Sinai. And, of course, they had trouble with food and water. As you can imagine, for two million people, it's a, it's a little hard to cart enough food. We're going to the beach for a week, and we're having trouble carting enough food. Yesterday was load the van day. I was only half grumpy. All through Israel's history, 
starting in the wilderness. The water that came out of the rock was for the family. The manna that fell from heaven was for the family. When they came into the land and they celebrated the first Passover, the Passover was for the family. You can see it in Leviticus. A child asks a question. They eat. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I have already presented the case many times that our kids are saints. So now I want you to hear something that's new in my thinking. The Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Your Bibles, no, I mean, if you're using one that's close to the text, say it correctly. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. That does not square with our theology. And so, as I've said so many times, you know that sometimes words are assumed that aren't there. They're elighted. And so we want to translate it this way. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your household will be saved if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, God did not write it that way. I believe in the covenant household, and we've talked about that. Our kids are saints. It does not mean they will trust Christ, but it is a promise that was made to the Philippian jailer. Believe, and you will be saved, and your house. They're put together with you, Philippian jailer. Now, if I take a verse like that and I say, okay, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I believe. And my house. Whoa. You mean I can count on the fact that all my kids are going to be saved? And the answer is yes. That is the promise of Scripture. Of course. If a man doesn't do his job and care for his family and serve his kids and teach them God's word and take them to worship, no, it may not happen. God made households, not individuals. God's plan is for household after household after household where the man comes to faith and We've already seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that sometimes it's the woman who believes and the man doesn't. Same. She is, in that sense, the head of the house. So that, you know, in, the, in those days, these Gentile people, they hear the gospel, and say the man believes like the Philippian jailer. Okay, there you go. He's the head of the house. But what if the woman believes and the man doesn't? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified, sainted, holy. Well, you know, that has a wide range of meaning, but 
But at least we know what it means from the Old Testament. I didn't get there last week, but when I announced I was gay, that's why I did that. <laughs> to show you that I hope no one left thinking that. But, uh, <laughs> but it's true. I'm a happy guy, generally speaking. But you see, words, uh, they, they change meaning. But we're not allowed to do that in Scripture. We can't take a word and make it fit what we want it to say. We have to take it as it comes. And so, if the believing spouse didn't sanctify the unbelieving spouse, your kids would be unclean, but now they are holy. So what am I saying? This is, this is almost, to some people, heretical. But you cannot find a place in Scripture that says no. You can only come to it by way of an inference based on your presuppositions. Our kids should be eating the Lord's table. That's what I'm saying. I believe kids should eat the Lord's table. If a three-year-old ate the Passover, the three-year-old eats our Passover. Well, think about that. Now, I want to say something more that this passage teaches us. And I've said it now. I just want to move beyond it a little bit. And that is, you have a temple... A tent, a tabernacle, a temple, another temple, another temple, and then you come to the New Testament and you have no structure. So we have a building right here, but this is not a temple. This is just a building. On the trips I went to, to India, I taught in many churches that were not in a building. It was outside. They had no building. But they were the temple. And we read it last week in Ephesians. God is putting people together and it's pictured like taking stones and building walls of Jews and Gentiles. And then the Spirit, God himself, comes to live in his people. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse uh, 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you shortly. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, what is the house in the Old Testament? It's not always called a temple. It's the house of God. You might know how to conduct yourself in the household of God which is the church, the assembly of the living God.
God, the pillar and support of the truth. We're a temple. Well, you can put it this way. The church all around the world, they're just one massive people, temple, and God lives in them. But we break it down just as the New Testament does into little local churches. And even in Ephesus where Timothy was, there were probably several local churches. That is, they were in a house that could hold 30 or 40 at the most. If it was a wealthy house, 50 people. They're the household of God. God lives there. I said the center of the universe is where God lives. Friends, it's Right here, God lives in us, the McKinney Bible Church Temple. What is better, a structure or people? God had a plan all along. He has not deviated from it. He's not quite finished with it. Not that he would dwell in a structure that's what surprised him about David saying, when did I ever say, make me a structure, God says to him. I never told you that. God's plan all along, of course, was to build a temple. Then for the temple to be demolished. And, and uh, it was. You know, in, in the book of Chronicles, Asa, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah are men who tore down idolatry. Those four kings. There's another king who tore down idolatry. He went even further. Just as God's law said it would happen. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He tore down the temple because it was filthy, idolatrous. And a new one came. But finally, the temple was torn down in A.D. 70, just as Jesus said it would be. You'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of glory. We say, well, Jesus came in A.D. 70. Did he come where you could look at him? No. Just like when he came to the Tower of Babel, he came down and looked. You couldn't see him. But he was there, so was Jesus there, conducting the Roman armies to tear down that temple, never to be erected again, no more building, instead people. And when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, you see a city that is called a person. Come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And she's got foundation stones, and she's got 12 gates with 12 pearls, and she's got a golden uh, street and a river that runs from the top, splits out into 12 and flows out. It's, it's a metaphor because God lives in people. Well, chapter 31 of Second Chronicles is rebuilding the temple and it's much the same as today it's just we don't have to have a structure we have people instead and God lives in us one more thing I want to show you and it is time to quit 
Uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And Paul writes this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent agitator. And yet, I found mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Now, the word I want you to notice is the word faithful. Twice we find it in chapter 31 of 2 Chronicles. In this whole project of setting it up just the way God wanted it, and the king supplying the animals for ascension offerings, and the people bringing their tithe in abundance because God has blessed the land so much. So they're bringing lots of stuff. And they're also making free will offerings and dedicated offerings, and it's all coming in. And what is said twice in the chapter? Faithful. Now, you see, Paul's writing to the Ephesian church. And he's saying, I'm hoping to come to you real quick. But if I'm delayed, I want you to know how one ought to live in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. How is it that God found Paul faithful to put him in such a position over an Ephesian temple, just as Hezekiah was put in a position, the kings were responsible for the support of the temple, just as Hezekiah was put in such a position to be over Yahweh's temple, the Solomonic temple. How was it? Did uh, Jesus look down the corridor of times and say, oh, you know, once, once I say Paul, he'll be a faithful man. I'll, I'll put him in charge. I mean, after all, he's an apostle to the Gentile. How did that happen? It only happened because God showed mercy and grace on him. And he made Paul into a faithful man who was once unfaithful to Yahweh, his God, who once killed people by vote who were part of the new temple of God. This is a tremendous passage. We haven't even hit two more of the points, but trust me, we're moving on next week. God is looking for people who love the household. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. God is looking for people who love forming the temple. That is, gathering on the Lord's Day to worship God and give tithes and offerings. God is looking for people who love the household and want their kids to get what they get. Think about it. Why did Israel eat the Passover with their children and the church today does not eat with their children? Stand with me. Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who became a living sacrifice for us. He was put to death. His body was mangled, yet no bone was broken. And he poured out his blood. And uh, when we come to the table, it is the picture of a sacrifice, flesh and blood. But we know that this wine is not blood and we know that this bread is not flesh and yet here lies a mystery because when we participate in the lord's table in faith you are remembering us and bringing about in our lives all the promises of your wonderful new covenant thank you lord amen